What a reminder, a good reminder of why we're here. We're here this morning to bring glory, to give glory to our God. What a privilege we have as the people of God to gather together, to hear from Him, from His Word. This morning we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah. Perhaps the most well-known amongst the prophets for at least two reasons. The first being because of the glorious description of the Messiah that we find in this book. And second of all, because of the numerous times that the New Testament authors quote from Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied during the time when Israel and Judah were divided. Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And God had commissioned his servant Isaiah to warn his people of the judgment that would fall upon them because of their sin. The prophet Isaiah spoke out against the empty ritualism that characterized the worship of the people. Instead of pouring their hearts out in worship to the Lord, the people were simply going through the motions. It was heartless religiosity. The people had established their own form of worship. And because of this defection from the truth, judgment was going to fall upon them, and judgment would take the form of Babylon. And Babylon would come and destroy the city of Jerusalem. And those who survived would be marched off into exile. Isaiah is a book of judgment. But it's not merely a book of judgment. Isaiah is a book of hope. For Isaiah prophesied that these exiles would return to the land. And redemption and reconciliation for the righteous remnant would come about. And we ask the question, well, how how is this possible? How can a people who have sinned so grievously against God Almighty be reconciled to him? Isaiah answers us. Isaiah gives an answer. And he says it would be possible because of the Lord's faithful servant. Because of the Lord's suffering servant. Because of the Messiah, Jesus. And then with great precision, Isaiah tells of the coming Messiah. The one who would bear the sins of his people. The one who would make a way for sinners to be reconciled. To the creator. Isaiah looks ahead to this time of restoration. And he also looks ahead to the final day. To the new heavens. And the new earth. The time when all the saints. Will forever reign. With God. So having, having laid out just a very high level view of the book of Isaiah. We come now to the last chapter. We're going to read together. From Isaiah chapter 66. Throughout the book, there are two themes that are pervasive. This this theme of judgment and this theme of hope. And we see these two themes set side by side. and And they're interwoven. Judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. And in these first four verses of chapter 66, we see the warning 
of judgment for those who would attempt to appease God through external religion, those who have chosen their own way. And we also see hope. In these verses, Isaiah is going to answer this question, to whom will the Lord look? To whom will the Lord look? So I'd invite you to stand now in honor of God, and we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves. You've revealed yourself to us in this book. And so I pray that you would give us hearts and minds to understand this morning. Conform us to the image of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Isaiah begins this passage with a description of who God is. If the people were to understand the kind of person to whom the Lord would look, they must first be reminded of who God is. There there are two categories of people here, those to whom the Lord looks and those who have chosen their own way. And here Isaiah is describing judgment that will fall on those who have indeed done this, they've chosen their own way. Those who thought that they could appease God through their religious practices. They thought that that simply bringing their sacrifices to the temple would give them a right standing before their creator. These people were deluded. They were deceived about their actual standing before God. And this this delusion was revealed way back in chapter 1. At the very beginning of this book... Isaiah condemns the people. And in verse 11 of chapter 1, it says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offering of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. You see, the people had missed the point. They were offering sacrifices and obeying the law externally, and they had forgotten the fact that God is concerned with the heart. Isaiah addresses the people, and and verse 1 opens with the familiar words, Thus says the Lord. Thus says Yahweh, the divine name, the Almighty, the Lord, the Creator, the Sustainer, the one who exercises 
sovereign control over his creatures. In this book of Isaiah, oftentimes, thus says the Lord is followed by a description of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea. Thus says the Lord who made you, the King of Israel, your Redeemer. Or, it's followed by an important statement, and that's what we have here. It's as if Isaiah has his hands on his mouth and he says, listen up. There's something important that I need to tell you. Thus says the Lord, and here's what he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Heaven is the place from which God rules. Can we conceive of something greater than this expanse? The heavens? God is so great, the earth is conceived as his footstool. Here we learn something about the transcendence of God. God transcends what we know. One writer says, uh, transcendence can be, un- can be understood in this way. It simply means God is up there. Isaiah refers to the Lord back in chapter 6 as high and lifted up. In chapter 40, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. God's transcendence is not merely his location, but it's his, it's his sovereign rule over the creation. He is over all. He is above all. Isaiah continues, what is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Having just stated that the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool, how absurd it would be for the people to think that they could make a place fitting for the Lord to dwell in. Can God be contained in a house? Does God need a place to lay his head? Of course not. Does this contradict what we read elsewhere in the scripture? I'm thinking back in the book of Exodus where it says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. What are we to make of the tabernacle and the temple? We have to remember that although the Lord is transcendent, he's above all, he comes and he dwells among his people. God has chosen throughout history to manifest his presence, to make known his presence in specific places. The tabernacle in Moses' day and the temple in Solomon's day. So by God reminding that us that, his, that uh, the heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool, and by asking the question, what's the house that you would build for me? He's not saying that he despises the temple. The temple that Solomon built. Rather, the Lord says he despises the way of thinking that concludes that he may be contained in some structure. And that he may be appeased or pacified by merely bringing sacrifices and offerings to him in that place. God despises the thinking that concludes that we can come to him on our own terms. The people in Isaiah's day were associating this temple worship and the sacrificial system with knowing God. I come to the temple, this place where God dwells, and then everything will be okay. 
God is not pleased with external religion. Because God is spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit. God said that he would dwell in the temple, but the temple didn't contain God. The people had missed the point. Their hearts and minds should have been directed beyond the temple to their God. So we see that God is transcendent. He's, he's up there. He's ruling over the universe. And we also see here that God is the creator. He is the creator. Verse 2 continues, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He says, I created everything. Take a look around you. You see the trees and the mountains? Look up in the sky. Do you see the stars and the sun? I did that. I spoke the word and my creation jumped into existence. I created all things. Do you think that you can do something for me? The people of Israel were attempting to come to God in the way that they chose. They were performing these religious ceremonies as a means of appeasing the creator of the universe. This is irrational. You see the corrupting nature of sin? Sin is a deceiver. It deceives us. We think that we're something more than we are. Throughout the book of Isaiah, the Lord reveals himself as a creator. In chapter 30, 42 and, and verse 5, he says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Indeed, from the very beginning of the Bible, the first verses in the beginning... God created. God is the creator and he is in need of nothing. God is the creator and he's in need of nothing. The people of Isaiah's day had a skewed view of who God was. They thought he could be pacified with external religion. The truth of the matter was that God found their religious practices to be repulsive, to be abhorrent. Why? Because they weren't performed from the heart. They were following a list of rules. They had forgotten that God needs nothing. They'd forgotten what the psalmist says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. This misconception about who God is goes beyond Isaiah's day. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul addresses the people of Athens with these words. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. To conceive of God as a deity who can be manipulated by some external religious practice is to equate God with an idol. This misconception of who God is, it went beyond Isaiah's day. 
It went beyond Paul's day. It's alive and well in the present day where where numerous systems have been constructed. These, These systems of religion as a means by which a person attempts to approach the living God in order to appease him, to offer something to God. Often it's couched in some form of religiosity. If I do this, certainly the Lord will look on me with favor. If I do this, the Lord is somehow indebted to me. God will tolerate none of it. He's the creator and sustainer of life. He's transcendent. He's above. He's in need of nothing. And he cannot be manipulated by the craft of man. So is God beyond reach? If he's in need of nothing, and and since he can't be appeased by man's meager effort, well then, is there hope for us? Is there hope for mankind? How can we come to God if indeed we can? We're right to ask the question, to whom will the Lord look? We find the answer in the second half of verse 2. The second half of the verse begins with this most important word, but. Incidentally, as you're reading the scripture, pay attention to these little words like but and for and therefore. They're very important. It begins with but this Yet, in spite of who God is, he's the creator and he's the sustainer. He's in need of nothing, but this is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and and trembles at his word. This should have our attention. God the creator, he who speaks a word and the whole universe leaps into existence. He who has need of nothing. Yes, this God. He looks favorably upon a certain person. This is the one to whom I will look. We see God's greatness, his transcendence, set right along his abundant mercy, his condescension. God is up there and he comes down. Just a few chapters earlier in Isaiah chapter 57, if you have your Bibles open, you can turn back just a few pages. And in chapter 57, the Lord rebukes Israel for her idolatrous practices. Here is judgment. But he promises hope. So we see judgment and hope. He promises blessing for those who take refuge in him. And in verse 15, it says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So here we have Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things saying, I will look to a person. I will look with favor on one. I will pay attention to this one. He will consider a person who is humble and contrite in spirit, and he trembles at his word. And since this is true, since this is true, 
we are right to endeavor to understand this person. What is a humble and contrite person? One who trembles at his word. Let's consider this word humble for a moment. To be humble is to be lowly. To not promote ourselves or our agenda. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. I'm gentle and humble. This word could be translated poor, afflicted. It's the opposite of pride. Peter writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. Contrite, elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament, just used a, a few times. And it refers to a physical ailment, a physical infirmity, to be crippled in one's feet. And here in Isaiah, it refers to a spiritual condition. A person who is contrite in spirit recognizes his own spiritual bankruptcy. It's to be crushed under the recognition that one is a sinner. One has sinned against Almighty God. To be contrite. This is the one to whom God will look. We think of King David. King David, after sinning against God, he, he took Bathsheba for himself. Not only did he do that, but he ordered that Bathsheba's husband be killed. So David's guilty of murder and adultery. And the prophet Nathan confronts David in his sin. And then David takes up his pen sometime following this and writes Psalm 51. And in verse 16 he says... For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the Lord says, I will look to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. The person who's aware of their nothingness before an almighty God. In Isaiah's day, it was the person who understood that no temple could contain God. It was the person who understood that no number of ritual sacrifices could make God indebted to the individual for the sacrifices being offered. But there's another quality of character that describes the person, the one to whom God will look. God will look to the one who trembles at his word. Remember what's happening here. God the creator, the one who needs nothing, says, I will look to a person. So what does it mean to tremble at God's word? One of the things it means is when we take up this book and we read it, we recognize that we're reading the very words of God himself. We're hearing from the great I am. The one who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. And for believers, those of us who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We've been given new hearts and minds. And we read the scripture. 
And we're overwhelmed by the glory and the splendor of the author of Scripture. And we tremble in awe and in reverence for the author of this book. And our hearts and our minds are stirred. We desire to obey the Scripture. One writer says that trembling denotes a sensitive longing to obey. A sensitive longing to obey. We get a sense of this godly trembling from an example in the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 9, Ezra had received word that God's people had not separated themselves from the peoples of the land as God had instructed. Instead, they had taken wives for themselves. And in Ezra chapter 9 and verse 3, it says, As soon as I, that is Ezra, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Ezra was appalled by the behavior of the Israelites. He held God's word with such high esteem. Indeed, he trembled at God's word. This trembling led him to confession of the sins of the people and prayer on their behalf. As we consider what it means to tremble at God's word, we should ask ourselves, well, what do we know about God's word? We know it's authoritative. We know it's inerrant, without error. We know it's inspired. We know that it will always accomplish what God desires for it to accomplish. Isaiah says, it, speaking of God's word, will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. What is it that the word of God does? It purges and purifies. It shatters the hardness of the human heart. Jeremiah says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces, it penetrates the heart. The word of God exposes what lies deep inside. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of souls and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is not all. As we read through the Psalms, we we learn that God's word revives us. God's word gives life. It's sweeter than honey. It shows us the way to go. It's the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. We could go on extolling the virtues of the word of God. But we recognize it always accomplishes what God intends for it to accomplish. It purifies, it exposes, it revives, it gives life. Furthermore, in the word, word of God, we learn the way of salvation. We learn where we came from, why we're here, and where we're going. Why would we not tremble 
before the word of God. Isaiah taught that God would look to those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at his word. Notice what it does not say. It does not say that God will look to those who are of superior intellect. To the successful person. To the one who can multitask. To the one who is strong and can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. It does not say that. The one who follows all the rules. No. It says the Lord looks to him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at his word. I wonder if any of us have have constructed in our own minds, maybe just a secret thing, some way of commending ourselves to God. Maybe it's some religious ceremony that we're following, something we're doing. Some amount of giving. If I give this much, certainly the Lord will accept me. Some amount of personal piety, some pursuit of holiness, some self-denial. If I do this, and certainly none of these things are bad. As people of God, we, we gather together as the church, and we worship together. We want to be people who are pursuing holiness. We want to be generous givers. All of these things are good. The danger is when we start to view these things as as a means of earning God's favor. Rather than as fruits that flow from a life that has been changed by the creator. God is the creator and in need of nothing. What kind of person is this humble and contrite one? The one who trembles at God's word. It's one who lives a life of daily repentance and faith. The one who wakes up in the morning and confesses, Lord, I have nothing to offer you today. The person who casts himself wholly on the grace and mercy of God and entrusts himself to the Lord Jesus Christ It's Moses back in the book of Exodus when after having heard from the Lord, he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. It's Isaiah in chapter 6 who upon catching a glimpse of the Lord high and lifted up said, Woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. It's Job who after having been interrogated by God replied, Behold. I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's Peter in Luke chapter 5, who after having fished all night and caught nothing, Witness at the command of the Lord Jesus such a remarkable catch of fish that the nets began to break. And he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's the tax collector in Luke 18. Who upon entering the temple stood afar off and wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, 
sinner. It's every person that comes confessing his own righteousness before a holy God. Have you come this morning with a humble and contrite heart? Are we characterized by a spirit of repentance? Daily repentance. Have you come to this place in your life where you recognize that no amount of of working can get you to God? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Isaiah taught that God needed nothing. But because of his divine mercy, he would look with favor on those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at his word. We have to read on. Having reminded the readers of who God is and and described the person to whom God would look. Isaiah now describes those who despise the Lord and choose their own way. And then he describes the judgment that would fall upon them. In this final section of these first four verses of Isaiah 66, we see that the Lord will choose harsh treatment for those who choose their own ways. In verse 3, we see these various acts of the sacrificial system equated with wickedness. They're set right along, the acceptable with the unacceptable. Why? It's because the worshipers were simply going through the motions. Their religious practices, instead of drawing them near to God, were were proving their guilt. Let's consider for a moment the the negative aspects here. In verse 3, one who kills a man, breaking a dog's neck, offering pig's blood, and blessing an idol. These are strange statements. They're offensive statements. They demonstrate how putrid, how vile in the sight of God is heartless religion. Heartless religiosity is a stench in the nostrils of Almighty God. The prophet prophet Amos addressed a similar uh, situation as Isaiah did, namely that of heartless religion. In Amos chapter 5 and verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. At the end of verse 3, look with me at the end of verse 3. It says, these have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. In other words, they had come up with their own system of religion. They love their abominations. They love their system of God-pleasing. They were content. Because they could live as their flesh desired. They could indulge themselves and then come and make it right before the Lord. By following these practices. In essence, they've said, Lord, uh, thanks for your advice, but no thanks. We'll go our own way. This hasn't changed throughout human history. Some years ago, a song was written. 
singer was telling everyone that he was going to do it. Indeed, he had done it his way. It's a commentary on the human heart. I did it my way. The problem for Israel was not that God was unwilling to forgive. But rather that the people wanted to follow their own ways. The people were culpable. They were responsible for their sins. And they tried to appease God through these practices while their hearts were far from him. Just a chapter previous, I was ready to be sought by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. So for those choosing their own ways, God would choose harsh treatment for them. In verse 4, these are terrifying words from the one who is high and lifted up. The one who inhabits eternity. Concocting one system of worship, one that is contrary to the word of God, is no mere trifle. It's no small offense. It's an offense against the creator of the rankest kind. It's, it's thumbing your nose at God. It's making a mockery of him. And God says, I will not tolerate it. We need to remember that every other system of religion in the world is doing just this. Making a mockery of God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is but one way to God. God says that he will bring the people's fears upon them. They would experience divine wrath because they had chosen their own way. There is no more dreadful place to be than under the wrath of God. Can this wrath be averted? Can judgment be avoided? Was there any hope for the people of Israel and by extension for us today? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we must confess that each of us has chosen our own way. Thankfully, we don't need to look any further than the book of Isaiah for an answer. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read of the suffering servant. The one through whom God would reconcile his people to himself. To be reconciled means to be brought back into a right relationship with. In chapter 53, we read of the suffering servant, the Messiah. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Here is hope for the lost. Here is hope for the hurting. Here is hope for those who have chosen their own way. Hope is to be found in Jesus, the Messiah. 
the one who made it possible for sinners to be reconciled to the Creator. In light of the magnitude of the sacrifice, in light of what it costs to redeem a people, the blood of the sinless Son of God, in light of this reality, how foolish, how arrogant to think that that we can bring something to God. For us to think that God is indebted to us. God who is in need of nothing. When we started, I, I mentioned these two themes of judgment and hope. And they run through the book of Isaiah. Jesus Christ endured the judgment that we deserved. And through that judgment, he gave us hope. Judgment and hope. The question has been asked and answered, to whom will the Lord look? The Lord will look to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at God's word. Hear this liberating message. The good news of the gospel. We come to God with humble and contrite hearts. Resting in the finished work of the Savior. There is freedom here. Freedom from a life of attempting to earn our way to God. And seeing our failures and being frustrated by the failures. Day after day after day. The Lord says, come to me. I will accept the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. And who trembles at my word. Some 150 years ago, Elvina Hall, sitting in a choir loft, wrote these words to a hymn that we still sing today. I think she got it right. Here's what she wrote. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. God looks to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles At his word. May we. By God's grace. Be that people. Let's pray together. Father we thank you for the good news. Of the gospel. Thank you that no amount of working. Will earn your favor. The work has been done. Through Christ. Your son. Give us grace to rest in him alone. Today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.